Good morning. Everybody doing well? All right. I'll take some of the smiles as yes, and the others you're trying to figure out. Uh, God is good all the time. Kind of throw you off because we usually do it at the end, but, you know, we uh, want to switch things up a little bit. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 32 this morning. A rather larger section of Scripture than we've been doing in the past several weeks. Uh, but we're in kind of like a mini-series of our overall series. So our overall series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we're walking through the Gospels as chronologically as possible. And we have now been in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5 for several months, and we'll continue to be in here into the new year. Um, but we're going to be in verse as 21 through 32 this morning. And if you missed last week, uh, the smaller series we're doing is It Matters. And uh, you can check the church's podcast for the message if you'd like to listen to it that. But here's some cliff notes real quick. It matters what we think and believe about Jesus. It matters how we view God's word. It matters what we believe, and it matters what we live or how we live. And we were spending time in verses 17 through 20 last week and saw how Jesus was bringing that out. Again, our focus is going to begin in verse 21 this morning when Jesus continues to tell us what matters. And Jesus handles the things by matter, by, by flowing kind of what the Ten Commandments do in the Old Testament. So in Exodus chapter 20, you can read the Ten Commandments. And you see when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our re relationship with God and our reverence towards God. But then the, the latter six deal with our relationships with people. And here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is doing the same thing. He, he begins with our focus on God and our relationship with God, but then he is now going to be moving to commandments that don't deal necessarily with our relationship with God, but our relationship with individuals and with people and, and, and how we react to them. Now, God does a lot in his word to give us instructions on how we should relate to people and how we should treat people and how we should relate to things of this world. And for the Jewish people, which Jesus' audience was, they would have a reverence for God. The Jewish people didn't even say the covenantal name of God as Yahweh. They, would, they wouldn't even speak it. They wouldn't even write it out. They would do what we would talk, call avoiding the vowels. And uh, they would have that such a reverence for his name. They understood that they were to keep the Sabbath holy, that they were not to work on the Sabbath. And there were some restrictions and regulations that kind of got muffled within the Jewish community in Jesus' day about what exactly constituted his work. And Jesus is going to give clarity to that throughout his ministry. And they understood that they weren't supposed to worship or create false idols. And all these four things deal with the first four commandments. But the latter six, as I said, deals with relationship with people. And the simple lesson from that is that our reverence for God is to be reflected in our relationships with people. Our relationship with people impact our relationship with God because our relationships with people reveal our allegiance to God and His will. And this is something the Jewish people were failing to accomplish. And part of that's because they didn't understand what God's Word actually was telling them to do. So Jesus is going to draw from the law and let them understand this is what God actually meant when he said. So when it comes to the law, the law does put limits on us. Okay? The law tells us there are things that are permissible and things that are not permissible. There are things we should do and there's things we shouldn't do. But when Christ comes, he comes to reveal that the law actually sets up the love of God. 
Because where the law has limits, love has no limits. Where the law confines, love liberates and sets us free. And Paul would draw from this understanding that we're no longer under the law, but now we're under grace. In other words, we're no longer bound to the law, but we are to adhere to it, we're submit to it, be obedient to it, but now we're found in the love of God. Whereas the law restricts, the love releases us. In Matthew 21 through verse 47, Jesus is going to give us six things which matter. But for the sake of time, we're only going to deal with three of those things this morning, and we'll deal with the other three next week. And then we're going to look in verse 48 as we conclude this morning on why we should do these things. So let's begin with our first subject matter, beginning verse 21. We'll read through verse 26. The word of the Lord says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and that word brother could be brother and sister, it's gender neutral, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus here is pulling directly from the law of God. The, the command, you shall not murder, comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You can also find it in the book of Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17. So when Jesus begins in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, what we can know for sure, for certain now, that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience because they would have been familiar with the law. They would have heard it numerous times. When the Jews would go to the temple to worship, the law would be read every time they gathered. The scribes and the priests would walk around around with the law so the people could see it. It'd be like me reading the Bible and just walking around the room so you could see I'm actually reading from the Bible. They knew the law. They heard the law. There was reverence to God's written word. They were familiar with its language. But what Jesus is going to show them and shows us is that we can be familiar with the word of God and still not understand what God is saying. This is the problem with the Jewish people. They knew it. They were familiar with it. They could recite it. But they didn't understand what God was actually coming to tell them. And when it comes to murder in the Bible, murder in the Bible is not the same as death and war or death that happens because of self-defense. If we look through the Old Testament, we see that God is not opposed to these sort of things. Murder is different because murder involves anger. It's fueled by an individual's heart desiring to make things right. Murder is taking the role of God and then doing it from a sinful and selfish intention. To have a murderous heart is to have something in us which is so strongly against someone else that we want their destruction to come upon them. We want them to be severely injured. We want them to die. According to Jesus, murder is defined as having a strong hatred. Not even a physical act, just having a strong hatred. And it reveals something that matters when it comes to people. It matters how we feel about people. Hatred is a heart problem, which means that we have a murderous heart. When we look at someone, we want their destruction, we want their downfall, we want their death, we want them to be removed. You know, if we look 
into Scripture, into the first murder, we would go to Genesis chapter 4. We'd be introduced to Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord. And the Lord looks at Abel's offering, and he is pleased with it. Well, this sets Cain off. The Bible says in verse 5 of chapter 4 that Cain has become very angry. And in the midst of Cain's angry heart and his hatred towards his brother, God comes to Cain and tells him, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see, God revealed in that moment that he knew exactly where Cain's heart was. He had a hatred. He had an anger, and it was boiling inside of him. But God, even though he gives Cain instructions, we find that Cain doesn't listen to God. He does what he feels is right. He tries to make himself feel better. And then after the act, he then tries to cover it up, which lets us know when it's done, he knows what he did was wrong. See, to murder is to seek to settle a matter in our own power. Ultimately, murder is such a strong hatred that we want someone to be destroyed. And this is the problem. When we look at someone with such a strong hatred that we want the worst to fall upon them, We're looking at someone who's made in the image of God, and we're saying they don't even deserve to experience the presence of God. Murder and hatred are all about what we want, and it's fueled by our sinful nature. So Jesus takes this commandment, and he elaborates on it, because it reveals our mindset that our emotions and our actions and our views towards people are actually fueled by our feelings. And this is what condemns us, Jesus says. It's not the physical act. It's what's boiling in your heart. He, he says in verse 22, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The word angry in the Greek means an anger that is boiling over. It's something that captures our heart, and captures our mind that we just can't let it go. Jesus is not denying there are times for anger in this statement. We shouldn't go there. The Bible reveals there's a such thing as a righteous anger. What Jesus is dealing with here is a sinful anger. A righteous anger is an anger that is, is upset because the Lord is being belittled. It's upset because the Lord is being mocked. A righteous anger sees the world trying to redefine what God has already said and stated for eternity, and we get angry about that. We know Jesus had a righteous anger, but a sinful anger. A sinful anger is when we are mocked. We get angry because someone is picking on us or making us feel little. We're more concerned about us than the things of God. An unrighteous anger is an anger that will consume us. And so in the book of Colossians chapter 3, we're instructed to put away or do away with anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Then Jesus goes on in verse uh, 22 about insulting. The word for insult is almost untranslatable from the Greek into the English. The word is raka, R-A-C-A, if you're wanting to write that down. What it means is it's, it's to put a tone of voice into something. The word literally captures this image of walking up to someone and spitting in their face to insult them. I guess in COVID days, it would be walking up and coughing on them, right? 
That's the word. It means to insult. It is, it is to look at someone and to have an arrogance and a view of contempt toward them. It's to look at them and say, man, they, they are a brainless idiot. It's to say, you know, if they, if they would have done that, if I was in the position, I would have done it better. It ultimately is to lose respect for an individual, which every individual is created in the image of God. As believers, Jesus is telling us when we belittle people, when we insult them, when we get angry with them, when we badmouth them or bash them, we sin and we're guilty of murder. And this even includes politicians. Guilty of murder. The Bible instructs us in Romans 13 that we are to respect and pray for all of those whom God has placed in authority. The other phrase Jesus uses is, you fool. This comes with even a stronger judgment of the hell of fire. To some, someone who's a fool is, is not just to say they lack sense. It's to say, it's to judge their moral character. It's to seek out the individual's destruction along with their reputation. And Jesus says this sort of heart brings judgment. The phrase hell of fire hold, held a lot of imagery for Jesus' audience in this day. When he said hell of fire, the word is, is Gehenna. Gehenna was a physical place in the land of Israel. It's a place Jesus continually uses to describe what hell is going to be like. It's literally the valley of, in the valley of Hinnon. And it was in this valley where pagan worship would take place. They would take their children and they would offer them up to these false gods in the fire. And for the Jewish people, when Jesus uses this word, their minds would immediately gone to speak of evil and destruction. Jesus is saying the worst thing we can do is to belittle another individual just to make ourselves feel better or just because that's what everyone else is doing. When we have anger or speak judgment, we are denying another's identity as being made in the image of God, and we're seeing that person as one who's not even worthy to experience the presence of God. Jesus pointed out a murder is not just an outward manifestation Rather, a murder is one who has inward motives. It's how we feel. So Christianity isn't just about do's and don'ts. Rather, it's about why do we do this? What is the reason behind it? The final part of this section deals with reconciliation. The emphasis is on the individual doing this, seeking reconciliation before they come to the altar, before they offer up their gift this is referring back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So if you want some good reading this afternoon, go to the first seven chapter, chapters of the book of Leviticus. And in those seven chapters, there are specific offerings to which specific sacrifices or specific gifts had to be offered. And so when a person came to offer these sacrifices or these gifts, they had to know exactly what they were offering it for. They had to know, are they offering for themselves? Are they offering because there's something between them and God? Are they offering because they did something against their fellow man? They were very specific because God is a God who wants to be worshipped in a very specific way. So a Jewish individual would bring the sacrifice and gift. They had to know, okay, what am I bringing this for? They had to recognize the sin that they were seeking restitution for. Who was this sin against? This kept God's people from going through the motions of worship. 
They didn't just, couldn't just show up. They had to have intention. The means of the gift was to make this individual right with God and right with their fellow man. And Jesus points out right here that to be right with God, you must first be right with your brother and sister in Christ, and you must be right with fellow individuals in your life. The lesson here is a murderous heart, an angry heart, a heart which belittles another individual is a barrier between us and God. So how's your heart with people right now? How do you view people? Are you mad, angry? Do you want the worst to fall upon somebody? Are you no longer seeing that individual who needs to be in God's presence and experience God's love? Jesus says you're guilty of murder. In verse 27, he moves on to a new subject dealing with another commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This is taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. Beginning in verse 20, the word of the Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is telling us it matters how we see people. Biblically, adultery is not defined as cheating on a spouse in a marriage. Adultery, as defined by God, is when you have sex outside of marriage. That's the first act of adultery. Now, adultery does take place when a spouse cheats on their husband or wife, but God began there, that if you have sex before you're married, you're an adulterer. In the Old Testament, God did put a means of reconciliation if a man and a woman committed adultery in offering sacrifices. And there's some weird conditions when it comes to adultery. If you want to look it up later and do your own little Bible study, you begin in Leviticus concerning adultery. The point of it was the sanctity of marriage. See, marriage was established by God in the midst of perfection between a man and a woman, and they would become one. And so adultery ruins the sanctity of marriage. The argument may be, well, okay, if I go in the Old Testament, anybody know how many wives David had? How about Solomon? A lot. <laughs> Solomon had wives, he had prostitutes, and he had other women on the side. And so some people say, well, how can God make such a statement when he had kings who were polygamous? They were married to multiple people and had multiple women in their lives. But if you look in Scripture, you see that God never approved of their lifestyle. He never approved of those relationships. And if you follow King Solomon's life, it was the multiple relationships he had which actually led him away from the Lord. God reveals in his word and his view of an adulterer's life that he was so against adultery, sex before marriage or cheating within a marriage, that he permitted the act of stoning an individual to death. That's God's view of adultery. And so when we come to the New Testament and we come into the Christmas story, which we're going to look at here in a couple weeks, it's why many people believe Mary went to go see her cousin or whatever relationship she had with Elizabeth. It wasn't just a casual visit. Her parents were probably trying to protect Mary because she was beginning to show. 
This is why Joseph considered to divorce Mary quietly, which means he would have given her a certificate of divorce, stating that their marriage had become annulled because of Mary's unfaithfulness. Joseph to do it quietly was so that they would not stone Mary. That was the whole point. He did not want to see Mary stoned according to the word of God, and that was a choice he could have. When Joseph and Mary return home to their hometown of Bethlehem, they have to stay in an inn instead of with family or friends because at that point in time, they both would have been perceived as adulterers. Joseph admitted that the child was not his. And in taking Mary as his wife, Joseph would have been guilty of stoning as well. So what Jesus does here when it comes to lust as he does with murder, he says to be guilty of this is not just the action It's not just the physical, it's what's in the heart. He says to look lustfully is to be guilty. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. The word look doesn't mean that you notice someone's beautiful. It doesn't mean that you you can't notice someone is attractive. The word look here means to look intently. So you may be in a store and you see someone that is attractive and your mind says, oh, that's a good-looking person. If you keep looking, that's lust. That's the same as committing adultery. The word look in the Greek is synonymous with the Hebrew word, speaking of how Eve saw that the tree was good. See, Eve didn't just happen upon the tree. She didn't just stumble, oh, there's the tree God told us not to go next to. She was inspecting it. She was looking intently at it. This is what to look lustfully is. When Jesus says we do this, Jesus says that we should gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands. Ouch. (laughs) So we'll all be like pirate Christians, right? We'll have patches and we'll have hooks for hands. I mean, what is Jesus saying? He's using hyperbole. He does this quite frequently throughout his ministry, particularly in the parables. Hyperbole means an exaggerated statement meant to capture the extreme importance of what is being said. The eye creates the lust, but the hand is the mean in which the lust comes into fruition. When I was in high school, I wrestled, and I loved wrestling. My wrestling coach gathered all of us teenage boys one day. I remember and he says, all right, guys, here's how you need to treat women. I thought, okay, this is gonna be, we're going to get some good advice here. He says, you need to treat women like a museum. When you go to a museum, you can look at things, but you don't touch it. Now, as a high school boy, what do you think is going through my mind? Well, that sounds like good advice. I think I should. The problem is that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He says that it's the looking that causes the lust that actually is guilty of adultery because it penetrates your heart. He says, don't look and don't touch. That's what Jesus says. And it comes down to the same principle as anger. When we look at someone with lust who is made in the image of God, here's what happens. We make them not into an individual, but into a thing. They are on the same terms as the forbidden fruit. And Jesus tells us we need to take extreme measures to prevent ourselves from allowing our heart to fall into lust. Guard your eyes. Guard your hands. The idea is that when sin comes, it infects all of us and it begins to take over. So we have to take measures and set up guardrails 
so we don't fall into this sinful temptation altogether, particularly when it comes to the avenue of lust and adultery. Now Jesus takes this idea and he expands it beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, commits, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I think this passage can be very touchy for a lot of people today. It's believed that all marriages have a 50-50 chance. That's that's kind of the thing out there. But the reality is 40% of all marriages end in divorce. 40% of all marriages end in divorce. When it comes to a second or third marriage, the percentage increases, typically based on the circumstance of the first marriage. And so to understand what Jesus is saying here, we again have to return to the Old Testament. This is Every time he says, it was also said, you have heard it said, he's pulling from God's word in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God comes to Moses and gives Moses a reason for divorce that you can give a certificate in order to annul a marriage or make the marriage divorce. And there's a lot of strange things that go into this. One of the grounds that you could give a certificate for divorce was that if you saw the woman as displeasing. The problem with that phrasing is they needed interpretation on what, in fact, is displeasing. And so these are the rules the Jewish people came up with. If your wife is no longer as attractive as she was when you got married, displeasing. If your wife is not bearing children for you, displeasing. Even the grounds that if your wife is only bearing you girls and not boys, displeasing. And so the Jewish people ran along with this, and this is why Jesus comes and attacks this idea. He's going to have to deal with it later in the Gospel of Matthew. What we need to know is how does God define adultery and sexual immorality? In some cases, it's obvious. The physical act of cheating on your spouse. This is what Jesus is saying when he's speaking of sexual immorality in verse 32. But here's the thing. Sexual immorality isn't always physically cheating. It isn't always a sexual act. You might be sexually immoral because you're flirting with someone at work. You might be sexually immoral because you're emotionally tying yourself to someone at work. It's not always sexual. You just may be doing activities with someone that you should only be doing with your spouse. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, here are the grounds for divorce. If you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, so believing wife, unbelieving husband, and the unbelieving husband wants to leave the believing wife, God gives permission for that to happen. Then he flips it. Let's say the unbelieving husband and the believing wife want to get a divorce. There are no grounds for a believer to ever leave the marriage unless the unbeliever institutes it. All grounds, including the act of adultery, here's what the Bible says. You have to seek reconciliation. You have to work this out. And one pushback I've had when it comes to this, well, what about abuse in a marriage? 
What about if, if the husband is abusing the wife, whether it's physically or emotionally or verbally? Well, we need to go to the biblical definition of marriage. This is what Jesus is pulling from. Biblical definition of marriage is when a man and a woman become one, they're married. They come into that sanctity. And so if a man and a woman are one in marriage, then there are no grounds for verbal, physical, or emotional abuse. If you were to come across one individual who physically was hurting themselves, verbally hurting themselves, emotionally hurting themselves, what would we say? We would say they need to find help. They need to find counseling. They need to get with a group of people. Abuse in a marriage is a cry for help, and it has to begin by seeking reconciliation. But if reconciliation cannot be attained, then I believe it makes grounds for divorce. I know not everyone agrees with me, but that is my understanding because two are not one. Rather, one has become more than important than the other. The point Jesus is making here in verse 31 and 32 is it matters how we treat people. The grounds for divorce that the Jewish people are going off were, were just belittling another individual. They were of no worth anymore in their life. And even though this is in the context of marriage, it can be expanded to what Jesus says about anger and lust previously. See, marriage isn't just a contract between a man and a woman. I think we forget that marriage is also a contract with God. That's why most marriages happen in a church with a minister. That's why we have witnesses there. And throughout Old Testament and New Testament, God never loosens his definition of marriage, which means it can't be loosened today. A lot of times divorce could have been prevented, I believe, through premarital counseling. I know we've got a couple engaged individuals get premarital counseling. And a lot of times divorces can be prevented through marriage counseling. Reconciliation is always the first step before divorce. Another reason I've come across in the church on why people don't get or why people get divorced, and I've heard this from believers. I just don't love them the same way as I used to. And I I always say, that's a good thing. If your love was the same when you first met as it is today, then something is wrong. But I also think we have this really weird definition of what love is. And when I first met Jamie, I was infatuated with her. Now, it was so bad that her friends called me Stalker Mike. I'm serious. You can ask her. She's out in the foyer. That was their nickname for me. Stalker Mike's calling again. Stalker Mike's down in the lobby. I was so infatuated. I just wanted to be around her. I wanted to talk to her. And, uh, and actually, was pushing her away. And God didn't allow our relationship to even begin until I got my relationship right with God. I had to become infatuated with Him. And I believe a lot of people confuse love for having a crush on somebody. You really like them. We even confuse love for, I think they're attractive, or they're attracted to me. We confuse that as love. We confuse love as, as just having an interest in somebody. That's not love. Love is more than emotions. It's actions and attitudes. And God is never interested. It's never on his heart or his mind for a marriage to end in divorce. For Jesus' audience is stating how you treat your spouse is important. They are to be seen and treated 
they are not to be seen and treated as worthless. They're not to be tossed aside when you've lost interest. You are to love them for better or worse. And the only grounds given throughout Scripture for divorce is sexual immorality when one party in the marriage has mistreated their spouse. And Jesus sums it up on why we should do this. You want to jump with me to verse 48. If you were paying attention at the beginning, then you know we're almost done. Why should we do this? Because it matters because we are God's people. Verse 48 of chapter 5, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Saying as God's people, we should feel and see and treat people differently than the world does. Let the news bash the politicians. Let the unbelievers bash each other. But as God's people, we have to be different. We have to reveal the righteousness of God by how we love people. If you look in verse 47, which is tying into this whole explaining of the law, he says, do not even the Gentiles do the same, and we'll look at that more next week. That word Gentile means for people who are not God's people, people who are not believers. And so Jesus says in verse 48, we're called to a higher calling. You're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's nobody perfect. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? The word perfect means to be complete. It's to be finished. To be reaching maturity. What Jesus is saying when he commands us to be perfect is that we are to be the people that God made us to be, God saved us to be, and who God calls us to be. To be perfect is to realize the purpose to which God has given us. And what is our purpose? In Genesis, God created people in his image and in his likeness. So our first purpose is right there. We are to be image bearers of God. When we become a Christian, it means we are little Christ. We are to be image bearers of Jesus Christ. This is what it is to be perfect. We are to be like God, and we are to be like Christ. So to be perfect, we're called to this higher calling to live out God's purpose, which is to shine, to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and bring God's glory into this world by loving people, all people. View this command because it seems impossible, perfect. As God reveals in His Word that He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, and that is by the power of His Holy Spirit. This also means that we can't live up to God's standards in Scripture without the Holy Spirit. And you don't receive the Holy Spirit unless you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So maybe today this is the gift you need to accept. It's what we call the gospel, the good news. God created you for a relationship with him. And that relationship is tainted and broken because of sin. We can't live up to the standards that God calls us to live to. We are not perfect. We are not holy we have sinful thoughts. We have sinful intentions. We have sinful looks. And God knows that about you. He knows you cannot be perfect on your own power. 
And so he sent Jesus Christ, his perfect son, the perfect atoning sacrifice, to live a perfect life so that he could take your punishment, my punishment, on the cross for our sin, the wrath of God poured out upon him. And he died and they placed him in a tomb, but the Bible says he rose three days later so we might find forgiveness for our sins, we might find salvation, and we might be given eternal life. The Bible says that if you're here and you believe that to be true, but you've yet to make that a confession of faith, confession means to make publicly audible, then God has brought you here to change that, to change your eternal destination and forgive you for your sins. So I'm going to be down here, and if that's you, then you need to become a child of God and be given the Holy Spirit so you can live the way God calls you to live. I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved and forgiven. We'll pray, we'll talk, we'll celebrate. But if you've already done that, if you're my brother and sister in Christ, here's some takeaway questions for us. Are your feelings toward other individuals in line with God's Word? Not just the people you agree with. Not just the people you like. All people. Are they in line with God's word? Are your eyes and what you see causing a heart issue? Are you treating your spouse or someone you're dating the way the Bible commands? If you have any conviction in your heart that you're not doing that, then here's the beauty of it. Because you're God's child, he's disciplining you because he loves you and to bring you to a place of repentance. And maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. Maybe you just need to kneel at your chair and tell God you repent and you need forgiveness and you need the strength to do what you're called to do. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us in a song. This is time of invitation. We not only become hearers of God's word, but doers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you've given us instructions in your word so that we can live a good life, an abundant life that you promise us. And Lord, it's hard in this world that seems to go counterculture to everything your word says. And Lord, I know there are people here that have made mistakes like I have. But we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your faithfulness to us. This place where you bring us into your presence and you speak over us through your word so we might be transformed more into your likeness. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior, I ask that your Spirit just come upon them in such power and such force that they have to walk down the aisle and let it be known. But Lord, let us be a people who bring you glory by the way we love people. And praise on the name of Jesus Christ.